I, I want to say thanks to the, to the worship team for leading us. We should just say thanks, you guys. Super job. And I'm also eternally always grateful for the folks who do all the tech work, who make the microphones work and the camera. Once I'll just say thank you guys. Appreciate that. Now, I also hope that you have your Bible with you. Now, I'm going to guess you probably have it on your phone, or you might have dared to bring something that looks like this. It's got pages and stuff. I, I really treasure this, and I want to encourage you as much as you can. As you go through your days, when you do your reading, it might be that you do your Bible reading somewhere on the go, somewhere away from home, but you, but you probably do have a Bible at home, and I encourage you to uh, be willing to pick this thing up now and then, because it, it, there's something unique and special about this book. And in particular, when, when you read the book, you get an idea of where the, the letters, the epistles, like Paul's letters, or the Gospels, or the Old Testament, or even the stories about which we just sang, where, where they show up in this thing. So that's an unsolicited, prepaid announcement I just made about reading your Bible. So I encourage you just to keep that, keep that in front of you. And now I'm also looking at all this music. This song that's right here on this, It, it Don't Mean a Thing. You know that song? I don't know why it's here. You know the rest of it. If it ain't got that swing, you know that, right? Okay. I'm going to put this, but I don't think that's what we're doing. It does mean a thing. So, But I'm going to put this right here for now. And we're going to be looking today at what probably is one of the greatest, can I say that? Every chapter is our favorite chapter when we're reading it. But one of the greatest chapters where the message is as profound and deep and clear as it could possibly be. Paul really goes to the heart of the business in this letter that he writes to a church or possibly churches in the area of a city called Ephesus that's up at the head of, of the Lycus Valley. And down the valley are other cities like Colossae. He wrote a letter to the church at Colossae, Colossians. And there are others who will be reading this letter. Remember, they're in a, in a Greek world, a pagan world, they're, they're in a city in Ephesus where the great temple, one of the great seven wonders of, of the ancient world, the temple to Aphrodite, is located. They are inundated in this world of a, a pagan world that is afraid of demons, afraid of fates. In fact, they're quite confident that the fates, the aeons, they're called, live in the air, in the air above their heads, flitting and flying about and uh, teasing and tempting and pitilessly coercing people to live by their capricious ideas so that people live according to fate. Fate just dominates everything, and people cannot escape that. They just are subject to the fates. It's a miserable existence. Paul writes to these people and says, i got a message for you that you need to hear. It's clearly a message they've heard before. Because there were people who responded to Paul and to this message of grace and became believers in Jesus. So when Paul writes this letter, he's restating something he's already said, which is why I will say to you, you've already heard a lot of this. That is in Ephesians chapter 2. But we're going to say it again. In fact, we're going to do kind of like Peter says. You've read Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 1 where he says, and by the way, no, 2 Peter chapter 1. 
where he says, I'm going to keep saying this to you, and I'm going to say it, and I'm going to say it, I'm going to repeat it over and over until I die, so that when I'm gone, you will not forget what I've said. So keep that in mind when you come to church. That's why you often hear things you've already heard, because we just keep repeating them until we die. But let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. I want us to look back. You looked at Ephesians chapter 1 last week, I believe. Well, we're going to take a little bit of chapter 1 and lean it right over into chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, turn to Ephesians. If you have it on your phone, bring it up. Let's look together at the text. We're going to walk right through the text today, right through these verses. But I want you to hear what may be the greatest message ever told on the face of the earth. Now look at the end of chapter 1 once again. This is Paul's prayer for these people. There are two great prayers in Ephesians that Paul writes. This is one of them. Listen carefully to what Paul says. Now know this. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? These, all of these, are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenlies or the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Those are all names given to these eons, to these fates, to these demons. Far above all of that earthly power stuff and every other name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Paul's already setting up what he's going to say to them about the gospel of grace. And he, God, put all things in subjection under his, Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. Now, I would really like to talk about the church that Paul just mentions here, because the second half of Ephesians chapter 2 and following is about the church and the kind of people we are in this world. Unfortunately, there's just not enough time to do it all, so we're just going to take the first part of chapter 2. So follow as I read, continue to read. Paul has just prayed this prayer. It is an incredible prayer talking about hope, riches of glory, power with which God raised Jesus from the dead and putting all things in subjection under Jesus' feet and giving him his head over the church. Now listen to what he does as he shifts into another gear in the next words. And you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too, all, all of us, formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Paul has just described the pagan world out of which all these believers in this Ephesian church came. But listen now. But God. Key words. You, you were a mess. In fact, you were not just a mess. You were dead. But God. 
being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. I'm going to say that once. I'm going to say it again. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is fully, utterly, completely the gift of God and not a result of works so that no one may boast. And then the last thought in this section, for we are his workmanship, his handiwork, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. It could be, and sometimes I think this, that all we really have to do is read that text and then just sit here for the next 30 minutes and think about that. Right? Wouldn't be a bad thing. But of course, I prepared a sermon, so I have to say words. Maybe just a few words about this text. Paul has prayed this magnificent prayer. Then he inserts a dark picture, a stark contrast to the preceding portrait of this victorious Christ. And in chapter 2, right here at the beginning, he inserts a comment about zombies. The walking dead. I was thinking about this. How, do you know how many movies have been put, produced that have to do with zombies? Countless, right? I mean, and, and they're all, they all run with a theme. In fact, I, I was thinking about this. Um, the dawn of the dead, the day of the dead, the land of the dead, the valley of the dead, the army of the dead. You know, all, all those are zombie movies. Have, have you seen any of them? Don't raise your hand. Um, the night of the living dead, the return of the dead. All, all zombie movies. And, of course, there are some that are spoofy, which I might might be able to handle, but then there's the TV series, The Walking Dead, and I thought, how fitting and appropriate. This is exactly what Paul's talking about, The Walking Dead. Now, I'm going to confess, I've not seen one of those. I can't. I cannot watch zombie movies because I am so susceptible and my imagination gets so crazy that if I watch one of those movies, I'll see zombies for a week, weeks behind the shower curtain and in the closet and behind the door. You know how that works. I, I, I just don't want to go there. It doesn't work for me. I, I, think, I think we humans tend to caricature those things that we fear. And there's a lot of fear built into that horror. But here, this is, okay, so this is Paul. He's not really talking about the zombies we portray in movies. But he is saying this. There are a bunch of humans who are walking around in the world who are dead. And he wants to make two major points in this text. So take note of these. If you're, if you're writing, and I encourage you to do that as well, he wants to make two points. One is this. He wants to make sure that we know how bad off we were without Christ, thinking that we could go it on our own without realizing that we're just flat dead. He wants us to be sure we know how bad off we were. Second, he wants us to be very clear on just how incomprehensible the gift 
of grace is. And notice, you've heard it already, how many times he says, in Christ Jesus. Make no mistake, Paul is pointing one direction and one direction only. You people, humans in general, you are just flat dead. You might be walking around breathing, but you got nothing that's going to save you from the brokenness of this world. But in Christ, and Paul will point to Christ over and over and over, you have a gift that makes you alive. Let's, let's just look at it. First of all, let's, let's focus on this. Just how bad off were we? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We kept going across the boundary that was set that we should not go across into forbidden places, the word trespasses, and sins, a word that means totally missing the mark. We're just way off the mark. And we humans spend a lot of time trying to get somewhere, get back on target, get back on track. We use all those phrases. Paul says fundamentally, spiritually, and every other way. You're just so totally off track from what was intended for you. You're dead even though you're moving about. You're just, you're just, you are. You're just zombies, witless, wandering, driven by insatiable hungers for something that other people have. In the case of zombies, brains. There's a whole lot more to be said about that. But he says you are breathing, but you have no life. You're convinced. You're so smart. We're all convinced we're smart, and we can control our lives and our destiny, and we're certain we know how to fulfill ourselves and how to define success. Just ask the world. The world will tell you what success is and peace and happiness, where to find those things. And yet, Paul says, you're stumbling, you're confused, you're misguided, always at war, grasping, jealous, envious, shoving other people, desperate to get our little piece of the pie. Paul says, that's how bad off we were. That's how bad off humanity is. This is a theme that Paul comes back to repeatedly in his writing. In Colossians, he says, you're dead because of your transgressions. Same, same line. In Romans, he says, death has spread to all. Romans 5, because we have all sinned. Romans 6.23, he says, the wages of sin is death. I knew you knew that one. Death. The wages of sin is death. In Romans 7, he says, sin deceived me and killed me. Paul felt it deeply in his own soul. To make matters worse, Paul says, the situation, this situation I'm describing in which you were dead is also the perfect place for the devil. Yes, there is a malign, tyrannical person here to whom Paul refers, a celestial being that goads people towards death. This is where the devil works, the prince of the power of the air, he calls him. Okay, that spoke right to those Greeks who lived in Ephesus. It spoke to everybody, actually, because they believed fully that all the demons are in the air. Paul says, yeah, I'm going to tell you about the one who's the prince, the one who's in charge of all of them. This is the place where he is at work, but he is at work to push you and to tempt you and to lead you all kinds of directions that you don't want to go. Here's the fundamental problem. We're afraid of death itself. Isn't that what the writer of Hebrews says? We are slaves of fear because of death in Hebrews chapter 2. 
So we run crazy out of fear of death and goaded by the devil to seek all kinds of things which we think will help us put off death or avoid it as long as possible, all the while running straight towards it. Paul says, we're, we're lost. And not only that, but we just do what we feel like doing, and we do it when we feel like doing it. And we convince ourselves that evil things are good things. And we try to escape this fear in every way we can, indulging in whatever we want. That's a bleak picture, is it not? And he says, and I'll tell you what the result is, you're under condemnation. You're not where God intended you. This children of wrath phrase that he uses right here, at the end of verse 3, by nature, children of wrath. By nature, dead. By nature, condemned because of the choices we make. We were in a bad, bad place. That's just how bad it can be. And you think, oh, come on, this is pretty dark. And yes, it is, because the dark picture that Paul paints is backdrop to the incredible blinding light of but God, God, you see, has the full right to condemn us and destroy us. He is God. But he said, nope, I'm not that. And listen to what he says. But God, rich in mercy, the very opposite of the divine wrath that Paul mentions, incomprehensible love with which he loved us. How unlovely we were. How undesirable our behavior was. How far, far away from God we were. And he loved us. Stop for a moment. Just stop for a moment. In fact, here's what I want us to do as we reflect on these words. I want to ask you to just close your eyes. Just stop for a moment. Take a deep breath. broken, how lost, how confused I have been. And here's a God who said, and I love you right where you are. I may not love what you do, but I love you. With a love says as he continues this thought he says even when we were dead even when we were dead in all this transgression when we were just getting out of bounds and going all kinds of places he said he made us alive together with Christ he made us alive together with Christ can you say that he made us alive together with Christ he resurrected us the very same power, and look up in verse 20 of chapter 1. It says, the same power of God that God used to bring about in Christ when he raised him from the dead, down in verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive with that same power. He has come to work in us in a way, the same way that he raised Jesus. And we, at, at Easter time and all along the way, we sing about how he rose from the grave. Well, guess what? The same power 
by which he rose from the grave is the same power that raises you and me from our dead state to a live state. We hear this throughout the scripture. Jesus said, we read it in John chapter 5. He said, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life. And then listen to what Paul says in another letter to another church in a big, big city. To the Romans, he writes this in chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Set you free. Verse 11 of Romans 8. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Okay, what do you think about that? What does that do when you hear that? What does that do to you? Okay, I, I, I kind of wanted to, you know, see jumping and shouting and, and, and amening and all that kind of stuff. Okay, I'm, I'm not going to solicit that, but hear what he says. You were dead. Now you're alive. You were blind, but now you see. Same thing the father said to his prodigal son. You were lost, but now you've been found. This is what Paul is echoing here. For God raised us up and seated us in heavenly places. Same phrase he's used now several times. In fact, he likes that phrase. If you look up in chapter 1, he seated Jesus at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now, the prince of the power of the air is no longer having that power. Heavenly places. Paul wants to make sure that we realize that the very place where the eons, the fates, flit about and where the devil has his workshop and the realm of, look up in chapter, 20, chapter 1, verse 21, the rulers and authorities and the powers and the dominions that exercise that pitiless fate over humans, they have lost their power. Now, I want to say something about that. Today, and all along the way through Christian history, People have liked to blame the devil for making me do all the things that I do as a believer, as a Christian. Now, let's say something about that. Paul says very clearly here, the prince of the power of the air has been defeated. Been defeated. He's still around, and he still creates confusion, and he still makes bad things look good, but the prince of the power of the air has no more influence in your life than what you allow him. No more. He does not have power in your life. And I will say further to you, does not occupy a place in your life where the Holy Spirit fully dwells. Listen to what Paul says once again. When we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Jesus, Savior, Lord, on the throne, God seats us beside, around, at the foot of him. And the prince of the power of the air 
no more authority and power over you. Don't give in to that. Don't even blame the devil. I tell you what, you and I, I know I do, I make choices fully on my own recognizance. I mess up and make mistakes all the time that I simply chose to do because I got this old, broken, sinful nature. And I have to come back to Paul who says, hey, don't blame the devil. You made that choice. But here's the good news, that this God who saved you through Jesus is not going to let go of you. He's going to hang on to you and hang on to you and keep on loving you because when you were despicable, he loved you. When you were lost and undone, he loved you. And today, when you, buddy, do stuff that he doesn't particularly care for, he still loves you. He may not like it. He's not going to let go. He's not going to let go. Look at this. Raised us up and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us. We get a sense here that this God who raised us up and seated us in a higher place and said, and I'm going to keep you there so that I can show throughout eternity my grace and the riches of my kindness. I'm going to keep you as a precious treasure to demonstrate what I did through Jesus in the world. Seated in heavenly places, a sense we have there when he says, so that I can show the surpassing riches in the ages to come, so that I can say this Christ who is alive and triumphant, you are alive and triumphant with him, and we're going to walk together into eternity. And it's going to be obvious for all the ages to come what I have done. God is going to, going to keep us and keep showing his mercy and his grace for eternity. Hang on to that. So, verse 8 and verse 9, probably the, some of the more familiar texts that we've read. In verse 8, he says, so this is how this works. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. We didn't, we couldn't make this happen. We simply cannot save ourselves. Saving, rescuing, is God's idea. It's his work. It's what he's been planning since before the foundations of the earth, we read in chapter 1. He's been planning this all along to lavish his grace and his mercy on dead, broken people. This is his gift from start to finish. And you know what we do? All we do is trust him. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. So once again, take a deep breath. I, I, I couldn't save myself. I can't. He can. And when I see this incredible, I believe in that. I believe you can do this. He says, oh, come on, come with me. What did he say to Peter and Andrew and James and John when they were sitting there on the docks, mending their nets? They were talking about fishing and all this stuff. And he said, hey, just come with me. 
And what did they do? They got up and they went with him. He says to you and me while we're sitting on the docks or while we're running wherever we are, trying to make things happen so that things will be better, he says, I want you to trust me and come with me. Trust me and come with me. Don't think for a minute, he says this in verse 9, don't think for a minute that you did anything. Remember, you were dead and hopeless following Satan's prompts. What makes you think you could have made this happen or that you earned any of it? That's the whole story of grace. You and I don't earn any of this. And what makes you think you have to earn his favor? And then here's the next question. What makes you think you have to keep on earning his favor in order to stay saved? If we didn't earn it in the first place, we can't earn it later on when we mess up. When we mess up, we come back and say, I messed up. And he says, I know. I never quit loving you. I never stopped extending this grace to you. I never stopped changing you and bringing you another step closer. Stay with me. Let's stop and think about that just for a moment. You didn't earn his favor. You don't have to keep on earning his favor. He has done the saving in Christ. You and I can rest in that. You and I can rest. We don't have to be flailing, struggling, trying to measure up in order to stay in his favor. He's already fully, openly, incomprehensibly extended it and given it to us. He's done the work. And he will hang on to us. He will show his kindness forever. So you and I stop flailing, stop struggling, Stop doubting. He says, I got you. I, I've loved you forever. And now that you're mine, I'm not letting go. Let's walk forward. In fact, he finishes this text with a great verse, in verse 10, a great thought. Okay. I've rescued you by my incomprehensible love and the riches of mercy that are so deep you'll never fully grasp them. But I'm going to tell you this as well. There's still something for you to do. I've got something for you to do. The reason I love this text is because it says to me, you know, you don't have to flail away at being good enough because you're never going to be good enough. On the other hand, because he saved me by his grace and made me a new, brand new creature, he says this, I got something for you to do. So listen to this, two things in this verse 10. Are you ready? Keep in mind this, first of all, for we are his workmanship. It's translated handiwork, or we're the product of his creative activity. You know what that Greek word is? And I love this. You ready? We are his, and the Greek word is poema. What English word does that sound like? Poem. Starts with the P and rhymes with O-M. Yeah. He says, you're, you're my poetry. 
You are my creative, you are my poetry. Now, what is poetry? I'm, I'm not a poet. I can make words rhyme, but I'm not a poet. Well, what does a real poet do? A poet expresses what? Love, character, nature, hopes, dreams, all the things about poetry. You are, we are his poetry, his poema, the work of his creative hands. So when we think about that, here's the first thing to think about. When God says, no, you couldn't save yourself, and you can't even keep yourself saved, I'm going to have to do that work for you. But I do have something for you to do. I want you to be my poetry. I want you to live in a way that expresses the very depths of my heart in this world. Okay, how are you going to do that? How does, how does that work? He gives us a hint, just a page over. This is why it's kind of handy to have the book here. He says, hey, I implore you to walk, same word he uses in verse 10, in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called with humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. That means everybody, people you like, people you don't like. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit. That sounds a little bit like what he said to the Galatians. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. When Paul says, you know that spirit that's in you? Here's the fruit that that spirit's going to grow. And what are they? Uh, Luke asked me this morning, if we just want to sing the song. But we'll just go ahead and say it out loud. For the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace. No, we're going to have different versions, so that's okay. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Oof. Okay, that's, that's enough right there. When Paul says we're his poetry, that means created in Christ Jesus, recreated, resurrected in Christ Jesus, there's a way we got to live in the world that makes very obvious we don't belong to the prince of the power of the air who's been defeated. We belong to the risen Jesus who's on the throne, around whose throne we are seated. That's the kind of life we live. When he says, you're my poetry, I think he's saying, so look like it. This is the first thing. This is, there's work for you to do. Live like this. But then there's another thing right here that is incredibly important for us to pick up on. For we are his poetry, created in Christ Jesus for what? What are the next two words? Good work. And now you're thinking, okay, now i got to figure out what the good works are and get, get, in, get involved. Perhaps. But listen to what he says. Good works prepared beforehand so that we might walk in them. Good works already prepared. In other words, God says, okay, I made you alive. I'm going to hang on to you through the ages. You're going to keep living in this world a little bit longer. And in the process, I don't want you to worry about the prince of the power of the air. I want you to focus on being an expression of my heart. And then I want you to keep your eyes open. Because there are some good works that I've already prepared that I want you to walk into. Okay? Some good works I've already prepared. I've got some divine appointments that I've prepared for you. 
I got some people you're going to run into, and you're going to have a chance to be the expression of my heart. You might even want to bring good news that God resurrects zombies. That might be your entrance into that conversation. You're going to, have, you're going to run into some people who are struggling, and you're going to say, I got, I got, I got good news. Good works prepared beforehand. I love this because I may not even have to go around looking for the good works. I mean, for, for me to pick up and create and try to do. He says, I've prepared them for you. So just walk, be the expression of my heart, and you're going to encounter people or opportunities or situations that I've prepared for you. And you just walk into those. Don't worry. I'll give you the time and energy, whatever you need, because I've prepared them for you and you for them. God, in his riches of mercy and incomprehensible love, looked at us broken, dead, struggling bunch and said, I still love you so much that I'm going to raise you up. And I'm going to seat you in the heavenly places. I'm going to destroy, ultimately, but I'm going to defeat the prince of the air. And you're going to occupy that space around the throne. It's not going to be anything you did or anything you keep on doing. You just know that I've got you. And now, as you walk in this world, be the expression of my heart, be my poetry, and walk into those things that I've prepared for you to do. There's a divine appointment in your life, maybe today, somebody you'll encounter, some experience you'll have, where you say, oh, God, what do you want me to say or do here? And just rest in that. Just be confident he's prepared stuff for you. So walk through your life. Walk through your life. And let him say, okay, see this right here? This is what I have for you. Let's do this together. Let's pray together for a moment, shall we? Father, we thank you for an incredible text that reminds us over and over again what you've done for us. And we're humbled in ways we cannot even express in words. You did this for us. And you made us alive. And you've given us hope. And you've given us the confidence that you're going to hang on to us and show your kindness through us through eternity, through the ages. Father, I pray that if there's anybody in this room right now who's just been kind of bumping along, struggling, not sure, uncertain, maybe afraid, fearful, fearing death, fearing all the, the sharp edges of this world, and not finding rest in you, not coming to you in faith and saying, Lord Jesus, I trust you. I want you in my life. I pray that if there's anybody here or anybody who hears this text this morning, this message, that your spirit would prompt that person to say, that's what I want. That's what I want. I want to go there. Father, touch the hearts of those who are still seeking, still anxious, worried, or confused. 
show your person your purpose, your power to save. Lord, for all of us, as we go through this life and we're wondering, what's your will? What do you want me to do? How do you want me to live? Help me to hear the words of this very simple text. Lord, help me to know you so well and to grow in your spirit to the point that that I, my life is an expression of, of your heart, your poetry. Let me be that. I don't even know exactly what all that means, so just teach me and show me how to be that. Father, prepare me to see and recognize those good works that you've already prepared that I will encounter and help me to walk right into them confident that you're at work and then accomplish your purposes. That's our prayer today. And we're going to take just a moment longer just to be quiet now and to let our prayer and our spirit to rest in you come to decisions or commitments that we need to make with you. Hear us now, O Lord, as each of us in the quietness of this moment. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to the podcast this week. I hope you felt inspired to take your next step of faith with Jesus. Just a couple next steps that you can take coming out of this. One, rate and review the podcast. That really does get the message out to other people faster, as well as click subscribe to make sure you get the latest content as it rolls out each week. And finally, if you want to partner with us financially, head on over to our website, click the word give. That's going to get the message out through our ministries further and faster. Have a wonderful week. God bless.